You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This isn't your average podcast, and he's not your average host. The James Altucher Show presents Wall Street Insane. Dan and Omid, welcome back to, I don't even know what to call this. It's the insane, we traded together, built businesses together. We did this for many, many years. Dan and I have worked together for 21 years, trading, 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 then building, 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 and dealing with so many people. And it turned out like 80% of those people, I don't know what to call it. I don't want to call them criminals, but everybody was insane. Bad people. Yeah. <laughs> Wall Street was insane. And we could start from anywhere. Well, here's one story. So this is the truth. It's not like alleged or anything. Right before we met Ovid, Dan, you and I were helping run a VC fund, 212 Ventures. I don't know if you remember this, Dan. I was having a conversation with you, how you saw some marketing materials that were made in Europe that mentioned how the Bin Laden family was investors in InvestCorp. And InvestCorp had put $100 million or something with 212 Ventures. That's correct. Okay, let's put it this way. I'm going to put it in a legalese way. Someone had told you, <laughs> we don't know if this person was telling the truth or not. Someone had told you that they had seen some marketing materials that were being distributed in Europe that mentioned, and by the way, the Bin Laden family is a legit construction business family in Saudi Arabia. So Osama Bin Laden was the black sheep of the family. So he said that that, that name though wasn't on the american literature it was on the european marketing literature yeah which makes sense right i mean investcorp is a big group and based in bahrain right so it would make sense that the bin laden family maybe had some connections there but you know that was pre-2001 and post-2001 basically yeah i think you told me this like in 1999 actually or 2000 right that's right by the way, at the time, they owned Saks Fifth Avenue, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And we didn't make a big deal about it. But there were pictures of the Bin Laden family in InvestCorp materials. And so you mentioned this to me. And again, we don't know if it's true or not. Just someone told you. <laughs> and I mentioned it to Dr. Larry Brilliant, his real name. <laughs> and Dr. Brilliant, his claim to fame was he cured smallpox in India. That's his own personal claim to fame. He's, I don't know if that's true or not either. He cured smallpox in India by going from like tribe to tribe to all billion people in India and convincing him to get vaccinated. And then he became the head of Google.org for a while. And I think now he's the head of Pierre Amidyar's charitable foundation, the founder of eBay. And I guess after 9-11, 
I don't know how this conversation happened, but Larry called the FBI and mentioned his conversation with me. In November of 2001, the doorbell rings. I go look at it and there was a guy outside holding a police badge right to the phone. I couldn't even see him. And they're like, police, can we come up? And I think it was the babysitter, Lynn, said, yeah. At the time, I didn't know anything. I was a very insecure person. I just assumed if someone was going to accuse me of something, whether I was guilty or not, I was going to go to jail. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. So anyway, they come up and they said, look, we're from the FBI. And this is before I let them in. I'm just talking to them through the door. I'm like, why did you say you were from the police? They said, oh, it's a little easier for people around us who are listening to hear police and FBI. And I'm like, no, it's not. I think it would have been much better if you said FBI, frankly. So they come in and they said, they asked me about this conversation with Larry Brilliant. And I said, that's all I know. I don't really know anything. And then literally they stayed around for about an hour and we shot pool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all we were doing at the time was day trading. We had left 212 Venture, you know, InvestCorp, but there was still a connection between 212 Ventures and InvestCorp. There were some 212 Venture guys that went and worked at InvestCorp. Well, we had both been offered jobs at yes, InvestCorp. That's right. But this just goes to show you that everything is crazy. And somehow or other, it's not that hard to be in the center of the universe. It's a small community, the community of people who are actively investing and trading, at least it was then, professionally investing. And somehow we were in the middle of a world of shit all the time. <laughs> well, well, if you also remember, and Omid will remember this one, but you want to talk about kind of that same part of the world, our train ride to go see a portfolio fund up in Boston, we took a 5 a.m. train up there to basically see the probably the greatest investor we've ever known. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, it shows to our due diligence, like we visited every single fund we interviewed all references. We did our homework. And despite that, there were yeah. still bad people. So if you remember, I was reading a magazine on the train. Yeah, Bloomberg Magazine. So I was reading it, and I thought it was interesting that they talked about this particular person having a secret stake in Bullmore Lanes. That was the first thing. And I thought that was kind of funny and just random. And it was literally the only two investments they mentioned were Bowmore Lanes and Vaultus. Yeah, which was a company I started. Which is a company you started and was a InvestCorp portfolio company. I mean, in a roundabout way, 212 Ventures and InvestCorp funded that. Yeah, well, InvestCorp was the first $5 million investment that we accepted. Then CMGI, if people remember the, the big internet incubator, they invested $5 million. Allen and Company invested a million. Henry Kravis, yes. like personally invested a million. If anybody watched the movie Barbarians at the Gates, they know who he is. There was a lot of famous investors. And so I walked up to you and I said, hey, look at this article. You were six or seven seats ahead of me. First class versus coach class. That's right. That's <laughs> right. It was right. I had to open the door, show, show, you know. And you didn't realize up until that moment that Yasser Arafat was one of your investors. <laughs> I know. And it was his only other investment. It was it. In the U.S. There was, it was it. Baltimore Lanes, a bowling alley. Baltimore, which was very popular for bar and bat mitzvahs back in the day. Yeah. yeah. And vaulted. The secret for every business in New York City is whether you're a clothing store or a bowling alley or a ping pong place, you just play like club music and have dark lights on at night and allow kids to do drugs there. And that's your business model. Like that's sell right. clothes, make it a club. And that's what Bull Marlene's did for bowling. And Yasser Arafat was invested in that. Or if during that same time you were doing anything kind of 
technology related, you just put the word mobile in it. And yeah. people got really excited about that. Well, that's why when I had this one phone call, when we were raising money for Vaultus, at, at then it was called Mobile Logic. I remember um, I had a phone call with, on the call was Henry Kravis, Jim McCann, who started 1-800-Flowers, Leo Hindery, who started, what's that big thing where they did the cable across yeah, the, on the ocean, West Coast? And he also owned like Excite eventually. And yeah. anyway, so he was a big billionaire guy. And the guy from Irish Telecom, Dennis something, yeah. I forget his name. Anyway, they all put in money within 15 minutes of that phone call. I've never seen anything like that before or since where just five people immediately like wired money. And Henry Kravitz was like begging to do five. And me being an idiot said, no, 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 just one. Yeah. And like, we should have raised as much money as we could. But what became of the company, Valtis? First off, I raised 30 million then for that first round, 30 at a, or 15 million at a $30 million pre, $45 million post. We didn't have any assets. We just had an idea. So I raised 15 million on an idea and I used the 15 million to buy a company that was in the wireless software space in the mobile logic was the name of the company. And then over yeah. time, we bought more companies with money we raised. Altogether, we raised about $100 million. And then the company exited for $8 million. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and before that exit, I mean, this is kind of a funny and brutal part of it. But if you remember at our 212 Ventures headquarters, Merrill Lynch came in to propose taking Voltus public. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Merrill Lynch came in. And I remember two things about that. Three things. One is, at the time, Henry Blodgett was still an analyst for Merrill Lynch. This was obviously way before the dot-com bust or a little before the dot-com bust. And I remember them saying, Henry Blodgett will definitely cover this. And now we were an enterprise software company. It was a great product. It was just before its time. Like now this product is would be everywhere and probably the same product is everywhere. So we provide security for enterprise mobile, using mobile phones to access your database at a bank. So I remember them saying, Henry Blodgett will definitely cover this. And I'm like, doesn't Henry Blodgett just cover consumer internet? And they're like, yeah, yeah, but he'll cover this. And then the other thing is the main guy pitching us said, Alan, why don't you show them the next piece? And the guy's like, uh, my name is Bill. And <laughs> so that was the other thing. And then on the final page of the presentation, I was worth over a billion dollars on yeah. an IPO. <laughs> and they put that in the book. I remember that. Wow. So Henry Blodgett, maybe a little bit of context here. He was the famous tech analyst yeah. at Merrill. What came of him after the dot-com bust? He's been on this podcast, by the way. Like I've ah, interviewed okay. him. He started Business Insider. He's a good writer. He built up a really good organization. He's, he turned out to be a good CEO. And they sold for several hundred million to a German media company oh, like Springer okay. yeah. or something like that. And uh, he did a very good job. And he was not guilty of anything really more than anybody else was in those days. It's just every time there's a boom and a bust, there's a scapegoat. And he was the scapegoat. But the thing he was scapegoated for, I'm just trying to remember, was it that... He wrote, let's put some lipstick on this pig when he had to write a report about... I think it was pets.com, something like that, or, or uh, some company that wasn't so good. But that was his orders from his boss. <laughs> and a company might not have been good, but the stock still went up. The quality of the company was not related to the stock price. So what he did, which was recommending a stock that he felt was going up, wasn't necessarily wrong. He just got in trouble for it. And we talked about the legal case in my interview of him. It was very unfair the way they treated him. 
that was kind of the point of the Wall Street research departments back then, right? It was to just help the bankers land deals and for the traders to have volume for trading. Yeah, completely. It was like right now there's a little bit more of a separation between the analysts and the banking divisions. They claim there was back then too. I guess that's right. And the analysts had to resist though because the bankers would break that law all the time and call Mm -hmm. the analysts and say, look, we're bringing this company public. You better have a good report about it. And by the way, there's worse laws in the world. Like they just, finally they made it illegal for congressmen to to do insider trading. It was perfectly legal for senators and congressmen to trade on actual inside information until about a year or so ago. And Federal Reserve governors. Oh yeah, right. There was that recently came up. There was a recent thing. A bunch of them, a few of them, were like doing massive trades days before a major policy announcement or something. Yeah, like they just shorted Pan Parenthood. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. If Pan Parenthood was public, that would have been. Yes, yeah, so that's a whole other time. That was pre our trading. But it's interesting. There's an interesting parallel there where we saw it with a lot of the funds we looked at at our fund of funds. The three of us looked at a ton of opportunities that. We didn't necessarily love. We didn't necessarily love the people running it. We didn't love the product, the strategy. But there were a lot of big names chasing it, either chasing return or thinking they could get in and get out before anything happened. And we saw that with Vaultus. We saw with a ton of other deals at 212 where there were huge names, huge names coming into some of those ideas or businesses or products that were awful, that we'd walk out of a room and say, why are they writing a check. And I remember a multi-billionaire private equity guy, we were looking at a deal and someone said, oh, he came in for the first $5 million. And I'm like, well, what's, what's he care? He's, he's worth $5 billion. I mean, he, he didn't even look at this deal, but everyone piled in after him. Everyone. What company was that? That was one of the companies I think we looked at with 212 that I won't say the name, but it was one that we did was that our biggest investment? I think it was our second biggest. Okay. But I remember InvestCorp was excited because this guy was coming into the deal. You know, I don't know if I would feel differently now, but I grew to really hate being a venture capitalist. And it's the same thing with running a fund of funds. You have all these very smart guys coming into your office and they have their deck and everything is rosy and they're the best in the world. And if we sold one of these refrigerators to every other person in China, we'll have a trillion dollars in revenue. Like they all said the same thing and they'd have this the tilted smiley face where it starts off at zero in revenues and it goes up to gazillions of dollars. And I would remember sometimes we would just leave them waiting in the conference room because every pitch was the exact same. It didn't matter. Yeah. And we would just play on the Defender arcade machine in my office. <laughs> We would have tournaments while people were waiting. That's really still hard to believe that we would literally have a very legitimate company presenting to us that had probably raised a Series A, a Series B, and we were coming in, and literally there'd be three or four of us in that room, and you didn't want to be the last person in that room because you knew the other three would be in your office playing Defender. And sometimes the company would literally be left there with no one waiting for someone to come back in the room. Was there ever a time where nobody ever showed up and they were just told to go? There could have been. There could have been. It's it's within the realm of possibility, you're saying. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, okay, so then you and I did turn down continuing with that, like InvestCorp absorbed 212 Ventures and yes. we could have continued. Then 
InvestCorp immediately fired me from Vaultus, the company I started. So I was never involved with its eventual adventures. But we started trading. As we discussed last time, we met Omid. We're all trading together. We moved into a nice office on Fifth Avenue. We started a fund of hedge funds. We were on the road to legitimacy. And I mean, we were legitimate. We were legal. We did everything. As we mentioned last time, we were the only fund on the planet doing everything so by the book. It's ridiculous. Yeah. If, if I recall correctly, we even registered with the SEC. Yeah. Right. Which you didn't have to below 100 million in assets. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what we registered. And then later, I think they changed the rules and introduced some nuances or something. And then we deregistered. But the whole thing was very expensive for a small fund. It was like tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we could save the full story for this next time. But there is a reason why I also got myself fingerprinted on the way towards even getting potentially a broker's license to even be more registered. So we would be so above board, no one could deny. And you know, one interesting thing we notice is that again, there's perception and there's reality. Or remember the hedge fund that we were sharing part of an office space with, they had a quote unquote director of risk management. You remember this yeah. guy? He had like a PhD in risk management from some obscure Italian university. And his only purpose, as far as I could tell, was that whenever they were marketing to new investors, they would just pass by his office and say, here's our director of risk management. <laughs> I don't think I don't even know if he spoke English. That's the right. only conversation he ever right. had with the head of the hedge fund who was in that office. All those things mattered. The only thing that would take the place of that or registering with the SEC, it, all that stuff could go out the window if you came from Goldman. We kind of saw that. And yeah. we can kind of put Goldman in quotes, but if you had some type of pedigree like that, it didn't matter if you were young, didn't matter if you were successful at Goldman, you rolled out of one of those top shops, that's where the money was flowing. Well, that's why I was trying to do some trading for a pedigree name like Stevie Cohen or Izzy Englander at Millennium. I reached out to many people and, and some people said yes, some people said no. I reached out to Renaissance. So Renaissance is run by Jim Simons, biggest hedge fund. It's probably the hedge fund with the best returns in the world since 1990. And it's very quantitative and we were a quantitative shop, at least our trading was, not our fund of funds. We were very quantitative, meaning we wrote software to trade the markets. And Jim Simons, he wrote back to me, he was all excited to interview me and he asked me, what did I write my PhD thesis on? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish graduate school. And he's like, ugh, I can't interview you. We have a policy, only PhDs here. So I couldn't get that one. And I visited Stevie Cohen. And by the way, this is an example of an unbelievably professional investor. I'll describe at the end of this, but I'm waiting in the lobby and there's all these people wearing these SAC, Stevie A. Cohen, SAC fleeces, like these almost like winter coats. And I'm just so jealous of them walking in and out of there. Like they're all probably making like 10, 15 million a year. And they're young guys. So then finally, I go up to visit him. His secretary brings me up. It's right after four o'clock, the close of the day. And he was very friendly and generous. He's like, oh, the famous James Altucher. Because even then I was writing for thestreet.com and the Financial Times. And I described to him our approach, you know, the quantitative approach and everything. And he was very, very interested. Then we leave and nobody says hello or hi to him or anything. We leave, we walk out. He goes to his car and he says, by the way, uh, oh no, I asked him, how'd you do today in the markets? 
And he said, oh, this was by far the worst day of the year. And if it was the worst day of the year for any of us, I don't know about Omid, but for you or me, Dan, I would be crying. I yeah. would be calling my mom and crying. And he was just like, no big deal. Like, it's just the worst day of the year. Yeah. And then he wanted to see trades every day for the next week. So we had had like 95 straight up days in a row. And then for the next five days, when, and I'm not even exaggerating, for the next five days, I sent him trades. Every single one of them was down. And yeah. I don't know why. It, did, yeah. it statistically did not make any sense why. It was a normal market. Our stuff was working. And it worked after that as well. Everyone asked me later, do you think he was manipulating the market with your signals? And I, I don't believe it. Yeah. But I would send him the signals at 9.29 a.m., like right before the market opened when we would make our trades. And, you know, worked out for the best. But we did not have Stevie Cohen's backing at that point. Yeah. Hey, he didn't want me to give up either, but I just stopped messaging him. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates 
fast. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. How did you get to him? First, I would Google um, at SAC.com. So I started to see the format that people would have email addresses if they work there. Because if they posted on a message board or something, so-and-so at SAC.com. So I would understand the format. And then I would cold email every combination of possibilities that would lead to his email address. And ultimately, I got his email and he wrote back right away. Within seconds, he wrote back, I'd love to meet. He arranged it with his scheduler. Within minutes, I was scheduled to meet him like the next day. And and then he would start text messaging on AOL, what's your system saying? And he didn't want me to stop sending him signals, but I was so ashamed that I had sent him like five bad signals in a row. I just stopped messaging him. And I wrote him many years later, actually. There was some negative press about him and a divorce or I don't know, something. And I wrote to him and I said, look, you need to control the narrative here. Let me help you. Let me write a book about you. And no one's really written about you in a fair way. Uh, you know, it's always been biased. And he's like, nah, I got all the attention I need. I don't really want anymore. So that was my last communication with him. But in terms of what you were saying, though, I did try. We, we tried with other funds too. And I guess this leads to the story of the day. We were trading and doing the fund of funds and working hard, but we needed to raise money for the fund of funds. And so I went to my neighbor, Danny. He said to me, why don't you talk to my boss? He runs a big hedge fund. He would love to meet you. You guys would get along. And we took the train in together. I go to his office building and then his boss comes around. Who's this? And Danny's like, oh, this is the guy I told you about. So his boss gives me the tour of the whole facility. Then we sit down in his office. And he's like, okay, James, what do you want? I said to him, well, look, you have your strategy and I have a completely different strategy. It's a fund of hedge funds and we invest in hedge funds that specialize in pipes, private investments in public equities. And I'd love for you to invest. It's good diversification for you. And you know, I could sit up here and whatever. And he's like, listen, 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 
you seem like a great guy. If you wanted a job, you could quit doing that and come here anytime you're hired, just automatically. I like you. You're hired. You're friends with Danny. It's done. But I don't know really where you put your money or where those funds put their money. Like it could be anywhere. And the last thing I need to see on the front page of the Wall Street Journal is the name Bernard Madoff Securities, LLC. <laughs> so that was that. And he did not invest. And I remember being so depressed as I was walking out of his offices. That was kind of like started me thinking, boy, we really need to diversify. And that's when we started looking into like making stock picker and maybe even shutting down the fund or trying other things. Because how could I compete with a guy who had a, supposedly a $60 billion hedge fund that was up 1% a month every single month for 27 years in a row. Like it seemed inconceivable. And by the way, when I was going into his office, I remember one of our investors or at least two of our investors calling me and saying, oh, you're going to see Bernie Madoff. How does he do it? How does he do the magic? Or, or can we invest in his fund? And I remember calling back that guy, JG, after the whole scandal was revealed a few years later, and I said, do you remember calling me? And he's like, oh, we knew he was a scandal the whole time. Yeah. I never called you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm like, you, you definitely called me. Like, why would I remember you called me and yeah. not someone else? Like, you definitely called me. And it's, it's on my phone. And he's like, no, no, impossible. I never called you. By the way, he also dissuaded us from John Paulson, but that's another story. Yeah, that's right. It just goes to show you, though, everybody, that was a hard goddamn yeah. business. But I don't know what you guys remember of the Madoff thing or, or whatever. Or, Well, I'll say n not that particular your meeting, but when that all went down, I remember calling and we were both kind of like, this is incredible. That's Ponzi, you know. But Danny, the original intro, still at the time was saying his side, at least, the market making was legit. I think it was because I sat behind him while he was trading. Yeah. But here, this is the interesting thing. So what market making is, is that you have big customers like that want to buy a million shares of something. It's, you're not a regular broker. You're literally making the market. So you want to buy, they want to buy a million shares. You can't just put in a trade order, buy a million shares. You have to like work the market a little bit and try to buy a million shares as cheaply as possible. And he would trade around that. So to generate some profits for Bernie Madoff. But here's the thing. A lot of people suspected Madoff of something. They didn't know he was a total Ponzi scheme, but they suspected that he traded because he had all this knowledge on the market-making side who was buying the million shares of Exxon or whatever, that he would front-run that with the hedge fund. So the hedge fund would buy it first, then the market makers would buy the million shares. So people who invested in the hedge fund, they actually thought they were doing something illegal, but that they were benefiting from it and no one would catch Bernie because it's a hard thing to catch. Yeah. And even the investors, I don't want to say all the investors were scumbags, but there was some element of investors who thought that they were benefiting from illegal behavior. So they didn't mind. They didn't realize how illegal that it was just all vapor. They yeah. thought there was real trades were happening. It was just using this legit side to get information for the hedge fund side. Yeah. And then when Danny, who I won't say his last name, is a very good guy, when he wanted to work for the hedge fund, Bernie said, nah, you're not right for the hedge fund. And he ended up moving to Norway and trading uh, Norwegian fish oil futures. Yeah. You know, what I remember about Danny is that, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but the way he got his job is he found a random cell phone on the Metro North train. And then he called the number on it, and it turned out it was 
Madoff cell phone that he dropped on the train. So Danny offered to go into Madoff's office to return it to him. He happened to be unemployed at the time, and Madoff was so grateful that he asked him, he's like, well, thank you, good Samaritan. You know, I appreciate it. What do you do? What's going on? And then Danny said, well, I, I was, he was a trader or something before. And then Madoff offered him a job on the spot. And I remember this story because it was when we heard the story, it was like, oh, wow, this guy, Bernie Madoff, what a good guy. And that was his reputation. Wasn't yeah. he the president of the NASD or something? At yeah, one point? he started the NASDAQ. The, yeah, he was the president of the NASDAQ. Yeah. Yeah. So this is fascinating context because for those who didn't live through that period, the shock that like Uncle Bernie, the guy who gives heartstruck random Samaritans a job because they did him a kind turn, turned out to be the head of the Ponzi. And I believe the first time I ever heard about what happened with him in was it oh eight or early oh nine. It was the late. It was like December '08, yeah. right before he would have had to give out millions in bonuses. So oh, all okay. his employees lost millions in bonuses. Yeah, and the first time I heard about anything before it hit the news was either you or it might have been you, Dan, called me and said, "Hey, you remember Danny, the neighbor, work yeah. for Madoff, blah blah blah." I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, he just called and said that the FBI raided the offices today. He wasn't working there anymore, but he was still in touch. Was he working there or he was still? No, he wasn't working there then. He had already left. He was in Norway. Yeah. But all his friends yeah. were frantic because, you know, you get a small salary and you get millions in bonuses. And they lost out on millions yeah. right when the market was tanking, too. They needed the money. You know, one of the workers there, like, beat up one of Madoff's sons when he ran into him a few months later. <laughs> was Danny already in Norway? Yeah, Danny was already in Norway. Was he? And I, I remember he called me that night and I'm pretty sure he was crying or he was very, very upset. He's like, man, this can't be true. Like Madoff was like a father figure to me. Yeah. And he was very, very upset. He couldn't believe it's happening, but he, he knew all his friends were in trouble financially because of this. And I'll tell you one other weird coincidence that happened 10 years after that, almost to the day. But I was dating someone and about to even be engaged and someone I'm no longer in contact with at all. And I was just making a joke to her. It was one of our first dates. And like, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm your first boyfriend. And she's like, well, is your name Danny blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, did you just say Danny blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, why? And I'm like, just say the name again. And is it, and he had a weird spelling to his last name that was unusual. It's like, was it spelled this way? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, so it was 20 years earlier, that had been her first college boyfriend. Wow, that's the funny. same Danny. Yeah. So coincidences never, never leave. They always keep popping right. up over and over again. Oh, final twist to the story. So the year before the pandemic started, I reached out to Bernie Madoff in his jail and asked him if he wanted to come on the podcast. <laughs> and we went through the warden. And a few weeks later, the warden gets back to me and says, Madoff does not want to go on your podcast. I just remember thinking again, like, God damn it. Like, this guy keeps rejecting me. What <laughs> yeah, else is he yeah. doing in there? <laughs> the funny thing about that original meeting, though, is, and we touched on this in, you know, last week's podcast, is he likely would have wanted to come in for no fees. So Omid would have shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He definitely would not have paid fees. He would not have paid fees. So we luckily would have avoided him as a client. 
And you know, one, one other thing there is after the whole thing hit, I was a columnist for the Financial Times. Every Thursday I had a column and I wrote about the whole scandal and what I think happened and, and so on. And I got some calls from Madoff investors. And I remember one woman called me from Minnesota and I took the call. She had a heavy Minnesota accent, which I can't repeat. And she says, you know, I hope people realize it wasn't just Jews that got hurt in this. <laughs> like, I'm not Jewish. And I got hurt also. Yeah. It's like she just felt the need to tell someone that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She got wiped out, I think, if I recall. I think everybody got their original money back. That, that's right. But at the time, she had said she yeah. had been wiped out. Yeah. Yeah, she lost $800,000. Yeah. I mean, and down in Florida, there were suicides. There's a, there was at least like four or five suicides yeah. from the whole fallout, not including his son who did commit suicide or one of the hedge fund managers who was a feeder fund. Right. Like they raised money mm. and as a fund of funds, but Madoff was their only fund. Correct. And that guy killed himself. Yeah, I think he was European-based. But a lot of customers, you know, one of the guys who raised us money, Howard something, he told yeah. me, he knew a lot of their investors and he told me there was like four or five suicides at least. That was the minimum. How much money, was it Irvin Picard? Yeah. Who was, how much oh, money, yeah. how much in fees was made by the lawyers and the bankers and whoever who the government appointed to recovering that money. That was staggering. I think it was close to a billion in fees. Really? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was up there. Wow. It was like a shocking number. I mean, to be fair, it was a very, very complicated thing. And if you remember, they had to go sue some yes. people to try to, like people, like I believe the former owners of the New York Mets, who recently yeah, yeah. sold the team to C.V. Cohen, Yeah, they had cashed out. Yes, Oh, yeah, right before the scandal broke, right. they had completely cashed right. out. Right, and then they got sued, and I, I don't know enough about the legal details, but it's like an interesting thing that if you did invest in a fraud, but you took money out. Yeah, they had to write a big check. The Wilpons had to write a big check. And to his credit, I mean, Irving Picard recovered a ton of money, and I think some of the banks wrote checks without even challenging it. You know, I think they wanted to get beyond that. So he did a really good job recovering a ton of money. It was never the 60 or 70 billion of notional, you know, whatever the yeah. number was that Bernie had written it up to, but it was a good number. I think it was like roughly 80 or 90 cents on the dollar that everyone got back of, of their, their original, original investment. Right. right. But, you know, this, yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating thing where most people make like serious life decisions based on their paper wealth. Yes. But that's not unreasonable to do. Like, no. You know, for instance, we're all invested in private companies that have certain valuations. Dan and I talk about this all the time. We're invested all over the place. If let's say we had invested $10,000 in something, I won't make a decision based on that $10,000. I'll say, oh, okay, the latest valuation of the $10,000 is worth, let's say 50,000. I'm making this up, but I'll discount that a little. Okay, 25,000, I'll cut it in half, but then I'll make life decisions based on that. And when I think that company will exit. So it's not unreasonable to do, but it's painful when it doesn't work out. <laughs> Yeah. So that's why well, diversification is important. That's right. But yeah, so this was part two of just some of the insanity that we were in the center of. And we're starting to hit some of the meat of it, but it goes deeper and dirtier. Wall Street's just a painful place to, to make your money. But they say, why do people rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, Wall Street, <laughs> that's where we all thought we would make money. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I enjoyed trading in the very beginning. I didn't have the passion for it that I think, Omid, you've always had for it. But like, I enjoyed it in the beginning. It satisfied like this game-like curiosity for me and I was able to do software. 
but I really hated it. I just wanted to make a lot of money. I made a living from it, but I didn't really make a ton of money from it. And it's probably the same now. I mean, we obviously haven't traded like that in a long time, but it just felt like there were a lot of periods during our trading that were stressful and complicated. And there was a lot of stuff in the market. There was a lot of stuff outside the market. It would be like if we all decided to start trading crypto like a month ago. <laughs> and we were all like 25. Yeah. <laughs> and this last week hit and we would be like, what What are we What are we doing? Well, that did happen, Dan. You and I started day trading in like July 1st, 2001. Right. And we were doing okay. And then right. September happened. Yeah. yeah. And then the next time we started, well, that's another story. Yeah. And then next week, let's talk about mental health issues, in particular, the mental health hospital that we were all <laughs> part, partly responsible for. That's right. So, so that'll be a story and a half. But thanks once again, you guys, for coming on, both relatively new to the podcast. Dan, never been on the podcast. Oh, man, just been, come on now for a couple times for crypto. And uh, yeah, see you guys next week. <laughs>